There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. What's the theology behind communion and baptism? And does it matter? This is episode 90 of En Route. Welcome to En Route, the podcast at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Well, here in Minnesota, it finally is spring, which means that on Thursday it will be, when this is probably airing, it will be summer. We've kind of went from winter earlier earlier this month, late uh, last week, to uh, now to summer. That's the life in Minnesota, especially probably life in, in light of climate change, so... But for today's episode, um, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church will consider an important proposal this summer. Um, it's a, their measure has been proposed by the Diocese of Northern California, and it would repeal canon law that would require those who receive communion to be baptized. We believe that all people are God's people, so it's not just the gifts of God for baptized people said Merton Heatley, speaking in favor of the resolution. <clears throat> Hospitality and inclusion are the values that are pushing this resolution. And there, those are two very important values. But is that enough? Baptism and communion have been tied together since the early church. Does it matter if they become decoupled? And would the nature of communion and baptism change if they're split apart? Well, today I um, talk to uh, Frederick Schmidt. Um, he is back again. Um, he is the re- uh, vice rector at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he is, besides being an Episcopal priest, has, is a spiritual director, receipt, uh, retreat facilitator, conference leader, writer, and academic. And before his current position, um, Schmidt held the Reuben P. Job Chair in Spiritual Formation at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. And he, and while there, also directed the Job Institute first, uh, Job Institute for Spiritual Formation. In this episode, we talk about the theology behind these two very important sacraments, as well as the obsession among mainline Protestants with the concept of in- inclusion and how this change could help or hinder mainline Protestantism. Now, this is part one of a two-part episode. In the second part, um, I'm going to talk with Fred about abortion in light of the um, recent leak of a draft opinion from the Supreme Court 
Um, this is on a case that could um, overturn Roe uh, versus Wade. But for right now, here is part one of my interview with Frederick Schmidt. Well, it is good to have you back here and um, looking forward, kind of having a lot of hot button issues to talk about. Thanks, um, I'm just always looking forward, looking forward to talking to you about these, these issues. Same here. So, so why don't you explain a little bit of the background about um, the um, proposal dealing with um, baptism and the Eucharist, um, especially for those who aren't Episcopalian? Absolutely. Um, like most mainline denominations, we have a national gathering that makes decisions about proposals that may be applied across the church called the General Convention in our case. And in the run-up to a General Convention, uh, various churches and dioceses can generate proposals for consideration at that meeting. And the Diocese of Northern California has proposed that we decouple uh, the connection between baptism and Eucharist. Uh, the Episcopal Church has what's called open communion, and that's not precisely the same thing as what other churches mean by open communion. In the Episcopal Church, what that means is, is that communion is open to believers who have been baptized in any Christian tradition. Whereas in some parts of the church, open communion has come to mean communion given to anyone and everyone, whether they're baptized or not, whether they identify as a Christian or not. And we've been taking that approach. And the proposal in Northern California is that we no longer require people to be baptized. Now, the the only thing you can do typically in a service, of course, is simply to say that all baptized Christians are welcome to receive the Eucharist. And so I'm not suggesting for a moment that any of us check someone's baptismal documents to make sure that you're prepared. But that's the proposal that's on the table. And it's, it's different from the understanding that has dominated the history of the church. The proposal that Eucharist be shared with anyone and everyone is roughly about 30 or 40 years old in terms of its pedigree. And it has emerged in mainline Protestant conversations around the conviction that the Eucharist is about hospitality or about expressing the love of God. And that's a, that's a very different way of understanding the Eucharist than the way it has been understood historically. Historically, both in terms of hints from the New Testament, as well as documents from the tradition of the church, including things like the Didache, which was written at the end of the first century, more or less. Um, the emphasis has been that you need to be baptized 
in order to receive the Eucharist. In fact, the practice of the early church was that if you were seeking to be baptized until that time, the only part of the service that you might ever see would be the part of it that involved the reading of scripture and proclamation of the word. And then ideally at a great Easter vigil, you would be baptized and then receive the Eucharist for the first time. And the logic behind that is that um, baptism seen in that way is a rite of initiation. It's the formal beginning of a person's journey into God in Christ. And that the sacrament of the Eucharist is a further deepening of that journey. You receive the body and blood of Christ. And Christ, you become more a part of the body of Christ by virtue of that sacrament. It's a, uh, it's a very Catholic understanding of the sacrament. It's uh, a very orthodox, as in Eastern Orthodox, understanding of the sacrament. And you, you could say that in that particular way of thinking about the connection between baptism and Eucharist, what you're talking about is not just something that is symbolic of what Christ has done for us, but it's actually performative in the believer's life, that the, that the sacrament actually enacts a reality. And um, the, the difficulty with detaching the two of them is that when you pull the two of them apart and you say, well, they're, they're separate acts, and the Eucharist is about expressing the love of Christ for everyone, or an expression of hospitality. What you've essentially done is, is that you've changed what is a right or an experience for those who have committed themselves to this journey into a common, as in shared public experience of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, one of the really sort of uh, real problems theologically and pastorally is it raises really serious questions then both about what baptism is and what the Eucharist is. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, in a, in a very real way, it becomes almost describing the two of them as nice things to do but is otherwise unnecessary mm -hmm. uh, because after all you're what you're doing is, is you're just, you're just registering that God loves us all as his creation. So what's the drive behind all of this? You, I mean, you talk about hospitality and on one level, I can understand that in, if you're dealing with different forms of diversity about, you know, especially LGBTQ issues of welcoming, mm -hmm. but that doesn't describe the whole event. And it seems like that's what is happening here is you're trying to describe the entire event as hospitality instead of the action of, of being able to come to the table. Right. And I, I think actually, you know, Dennis, I think it's, a, 
In a way, it's a rather shallow understanding of the notion of inclusion. I, I think that one of the one of the things that people have not taken seriously is that if inclusion is about eliminating entirely any of the parameters of a of a gathering of Christians or of a church, never mind other kinds of institutions. If you simply erase uh, all of the initiatory experiences that are associated with it, that what you're doing is, is you are then by definition being more loving and more accepting. Um, and that's not really an issue for the Episcopal Church any longer as, as it applies to human differences. Mm -hmm. But one of the difficulties is, and, and I think that this is both an ecclesiological problem and a sociological problem, is that if you erase any of the expectations around Christian community, in a sense, there's nothing to belong to any longer. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I appreciated uh, about um, the conversations that our church had about those issues uh, is that uh, regardless of regardless of sexual orientation or race, um, members of our our tradition have understood uh, that what we're trying to preserve is an understanding of the Christian faith and the Christian journey that is two thousand years old. And that starts in earnest in baptism, but is deepened by the other sacraments of the church throughout a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, what it actually ends up doing is it actually ends up compromising uh, the logic of a sacramental approach to the Christian faith, which, by the way, is part of the reason I think that some people think of what happens in church as religious and, um, and uh, something else, maybe something private as being spiritual. When in fact, a Christian understanding of the uh, spiritual life begins in things that are religious in the sense that it's things sacramental, things about the body of Christ. And that that's the larger context in which all spiritual life is involved. I, I suspect it partly, too, because of the fact that far too many people think of baptism as membership in the church. And one of the things I find myself saying constantly when we talk about these issues and people are preparing for baptism is, look, being baptized is not about joining the church. Being baptized is about being buried and raised in the death and resurrection of Christ. So it seems to me, because, you know, I've understood what baptism is, and, and granted, I come from a, from a lower, low church tradition, but you kind of understand what the historic nature of a baptism is. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. It, but it seems to me that, that there's a lot of people that either don't understand that who are in leadership or don't want to understand it that way. I mean, it's, it's just confusing because it seems like that has been something that has been taught for a millennia. Mm -hmm. This is what baptism is. You know, it's not about membership. It's not about, you know, God just loves you, but it, it has this deeper meaning right. to it. Right. Yeah. And I, and to put the best case forward for what people are arguing we should do here, uh, I suppose if that people would argue, look, um, to refuse people the Eucharist or to, or to suggest that only the baptized can receive Eucharist uh, means that they're not going to experience the acceptance or love of the church. And that that provides a barrier to people feeling that they're fully a part of the experience of the church. The difficulty with that is, is that, first of all, I think there are other ways to make people feel welcome. Mm -hmm. um, you can do that as we do liturgically by saying to people, if, if you're not baptized or you would prefer not to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, because maybe, maybe you're a part of another tradition and you're uncomfortable with the way that we celebrate communion, then we invite you to cross your arms and invite the priest to give you a blessing. Uh, we also are making a really concerted effort to welcome people at the doors of the church and to be sure that people are greeted, uh, that people introduce themselves to visitors. And a third, and I think really important way that we've been trying to be welcoming is that we've really invited people to ask questions about the Christian tradition. You know, we have people in our parish who are not sure exactly where they are yet in terms of their understanding of the Christian faith and their own convictions about it. Mm -hmm. And we welcome one-on-one -on -one conversations. We welcome their participation in other events and educational opportunities in the church. And those are all acts of hospitality. What I find is, is that uh, in, in maintaining a distinction between that and what we do sacramentally, in baptism in the Eucharist is that it actually creates what I think is a very appropriate sort of context in which people can really consider whether or not this is something that they want to commit themselves to. You know, the, the Christian life is a way of life. Mm -hmm. and, and the question raised by the sacraments is, is really about do you want to commit yourself to this way of being? Um, and I, I think that's enormously important. I think another thing that people completely miss, honestly, is that if you look at, at our liturgy at any rate and you read through the content of it, I'm not convinced that it's ultimately all that welcoming 
to ask people to receive a sacrament that's framed liturgically in terms of the vocabulary as something a believer does. I mean, our prayer of thanksgiving at the end and the blessing that follows is, is all wrapped up in the notion that this is a, a family dinner of people who have committed themselves to Christ and hold certain convictions mm -hmm. about the work of Christ in the world. And I've tried to put myself in the position of someone who's maybe an atheist or an agnostic, or maybe a, a member of another religious tradition, and imagine what it's like to say prayers that sound as if you were a part of that experience and committed to it. And I think there's, there's also almost an awkward kind of, here are our prayers, here's our way of seeing the world and being in it, say these prayers with us. And one of the things I find kind of odd about that is when I put myself imaginatively in that position, I don't feel so much loved as I feel coerced to say things that I can't say with real conviction. So if these, and I would agree, are, are seen as kind of acts of commitment, would it then stand to say that, and I think when we think about commitment, we think that commitment is something that's very important. So would it stand to say that people, may not see the Christian life as something worth committing to? I think that that's possible. I mean, one of, the, one of the difficulties that I see in sort of turning this into an experience that anyone can have, regardless of your commitments and your perspectives, is that it raises a really serious question about why would I do that? I again, when I put myself in the position of an atheist or an agnostic uh, in that kind of context, my reaction is, okay, so you're telling me God loves me. And if there is a God, thank you for telling me that's the case. Now, can we just get on with life? <laughs> I mean, why would you why would you wrap a liturgy around that conviction? Why would you wrap a lifetime around that conviction? Why would you go to church 52 times a year? Uh, it seems to me that the real problem with that is, is that it actually empties the experience of its significance. Mm -hmm. So that's a part of the difficulty too. Mm -hmm. um, so, where do you think that this is gonna end up when it comes um, to a vote in the national convention? Is it, do you think that it will pass or do you think it will have to have more study or, or go down to defeat? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure, Dennis. Uh, judging from what happened the last time, because this proposal was made some years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the House of Bishops was, the body that decided against it. And otherwise, 
it, it passed with a majority among lay people and a smaller majority among clergy. Mm-hmm. So the, the question now really revolves around the convictions of the House of Bishops at this moment. Mm-hmm. Will they actually uh, hold the same position they held this last time? Or will they take a different approach to the question? Mm-hmm. And I don't honestly know how to judge that. There's been a lot of turnover in the House of Bishops since the last time that a decision was made about this. So I think it's at least possible that that change may be made. Mm-hmm. And if there are churches that you know want to hold to the old standard, are they still free to do so? Or well, technically, no. I mean, uh, I mean, if it becomes a canonical requirement, Mm -hmm. uh, then it wouldn't. Now, whether or not uh, individual parishes and priests might, you know, function informally in that way, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the people who are putting are behind this think that this is a way to help? maybe to grow the church or is it um i guess no. that's what i'm trying to get at because sometimes people think if we do this then more people might come and all that i i think that's possible mm-hmm. uh i don't think it's realistic our numbers like the numbers of all mainline protestant denominations have been trending downward and our average sunday attendance is down from oh, somewhere over 2 million uh, back in the 60s to probably an average Sunday attendance between 600 and 700,000 a Sunday. And nothing that we've done, and and we've, we've made lots of efforts as a denomination to be welcoming, has really shifted those numbers. I think that in the current environment where being spiritual but not religious has become increasingly common, the difficulty is is that mainline Protestant denominations are finding it difficult to make the case that attending church is somehow existentially necessary for lack of a better way of putting it. One of the things that I, I, I don't know if you always sense, if you sense this as well, but I, I sense it kind of, it's in the air um, at times, is that the things that you do within the church, why we gather, you always, at least for me, it feels like there's a sense that it's not important that it is kind of the issues, the things that happen out there um, in the world that are the things that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that anything that quote unquote is spiritual really isn't that important. Um, And in some ways almost doesn't have a a bearing on what happens outside of the church. Where I think the, the traditional Christian view has been 
that what happens within the church is not does have actually is tied to what happens outside of the church they're not separated they're um, they, they actually come together um right. you know I, I i don't know if that's something that you're feeling but it seems like that's something that i always at least within my um in my world that i feel like right. i'm dealing with in, in my corner of me like protestantism no i i i've felt the same way and I've, and I've begun to wonder whether or not the, the real issue revolves around self-selection, as it were, among lay people, that, they, that there's a, a sense in which people increasingly sort of make a choice uh, between two brands of Christian life. Uh, one requiring a high level of commitment uh, that holds that it's an absolutely necessary thing to do, and a and another brand of Christian life and practice that is all about a lower form of commitment, in which uh, the the practice in that faith tradition is one that's that's good to have, but not necessary to have. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that I suspect that part of what has been driving it uh, has been the relationship between mainline Protestantism and fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. I've argued now in more than one article since 2018 that what has happened to mainline Protestantism is that it's been in a a polarizing relationship with fundamentalism and evangelicalism, or call it fundagelicalism, and that in that 100 year long polarizing debate, what has happened is, is that if fundamentalists or evangelicals emphasize one thing, then mainline Protestantism in the name of not being thought of as fundamentalist or evangelical opts to either do the opposite or to surrender the emphasis that fundamentalism holds up. Mm. And if you look back at the history of the modernist fundamentalist controversy, uh, you can can see the outlines of that tendency already. Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick gave a sermon in 1922 in May of 1922, so almost exactly 100 years ago, called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Mm, Yes. And he was was a Northern Baptist who preached that sermon in a Presbyterian church. He was was serving a Presbyterian congregation. And knives were out between fundamentalist uh, pastors and church leaders and non-fundamentalists. And Fosdick 
made the case for another kind of Christianity that rejected the emphases of fundamentalism. And uh, Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, uh, actually appealed for him to serve as the pastor of what would become Riverside Church mm-hmm. in New York City. And on the condition that it not be a Baptist church, Fosdick agreed to serve that church. And you can, you can see the tension between mainline Protestantism and fundamentalism unfold from there. Some of the theological emphases have changed, but you still see these kind of polarizing choices that emerge as a result. I mean, fund- fundamentalists and evangelical stress individual salvation. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, mainliners have stressed corporate and political forms of salvation. Uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals have stressed the role of scripture and in particular inerrancy as a way of understanding scripture. Um, mainliners have opted for other approaches to the reliability of scripture and or have indulged conversations about what might be problematic in scripture. Uh, Fundamentalists and evangelicals have stressed belief in certain doctrines. Uh, You will meet an increasing number of mainline Protestants who say it isn't what you believe that counts. It's just that you love God. Um, And fundamentalists and evangelicals have emphasized uh, conversion, particularly in the context of a crisis. Whereas mainliners, uh, though, though we've still emphasized baptism, we're, we're doing things like we're now doing with this debate over the Eucharist. And we're saying, well, that isn't really, that really isn't all that necessary for you to participate in the life of the church. Mm. Now, there, there are huge numbers of variables between those, those four sets of polar opposite opinions. But unfortunately, the more intense the debates have become, the more simplistic the answers being offered have become as well. Mm. And all the theological nuance has kind of been crowded out of it. Yeah, I I think there's something fascinating in the disciples, um, probably I think in the, from the early mid nineties to the early aughts, um, the main issue was sexuality. And there was a lot of talk about it. And they even had um, you know, deep theological discussions where they had people on different sides and they were engaged in conversation um, on it. and you know, there was a lot of talk about that. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, they brought up a um, resolution on um, kind of welcoming transgender um, individuals into the life of the church. There was no real deep theological discussion about it. It just was 
kind of the same thing, thing that God loves them and that's it. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I do think that transgender pe- people do have a, a role in the church, but there was just no theological, like, why are we doing this? Why does this matter? Um, it just kind of was just kind of, it was nice. It was a nice thing to do. And it, it felt right. that there was I, so kind of like, I agree with that. It felt like it was just a lot more simpler but it wasn't really any there there. It was just kind of cotton candy and on an issue that I don't think is is about cotton candy. It's it's a quite serious issue. Yeah. Well, I think you're right about that. And I and I think that I think that part of what has happened is is that um, inclusion has become such a such an important category in terms of the life of the mainline Protestant churches that uh, it's it's become the one and only priority. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that's happened is is that the definition of what inclusion is all about has shifted in terms of its emphasis. I'm not entirely happy with with the phrase, but I'll I'll risk using it anyway. What what was a question of demographic inclusion, mm-hmm. openness openness to people, has subtly shifted, especially in the early aughts, to. Uh, what I would call a conceptual approach to inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that what you're pointing to, you know, the, uh, the unwillingness to engage the theological issues, the readiness to say, okay, there's nothing here really to discuss. This is, this is just about being loving. Um, is that, the the whole sort of theological content of the conversation has dropped out of the picture because it's it's no longer all that important to the people who are engaged in it. Hmm. And so I one of the things I've noticed about this conversation about um, the relationship between baptism and Eucharist is that people just um, are not willing to engage the conceptual or theological questions. Why do you think that is? I think that, you know, it's interesting. There's there's an almost kind of attitude that um, if it isn't as simple as a question of love, then what you must be doing is gatekeeping. Mm. Because, because go ahead. I mean, some of this almost feels anti-intellectual. Well, yes, it is. And and one of the ironies is is that in this one hundred year long debate with fundamentalism, uh, mainline Protestantism has become almost as anti-intellectual in its own way. As, fund, as the modern, as the 
fundamentalist of the modernist fundamentalist controversy were simplistic in their approach, mm. which is which is really ironic because a hundred years a hundred years later, no one seems to be prepared to think about it. No, and I I think that that's interesting too because I grew up evangelical, and you know I still obviously have some ties to it, and it's fascinating to see. There's a lot more intellectual engagement on issues within evangelicalism, even with all the problems they're in now, but, it's right. the, but even especially now, than there is, I think, in mainline Protestantism. I mean, I never see us really engaging on these issues of what does this mean? Why do I believe what I believe? Um, you know, a few years ago, I wrote an article that I when our, our church was became open and affirming is like, okay, why are we doing this? Why does mm-hmm. it matter? Um, and it's still a question I'm still trying to, to answer. I mean, I, I believe it is the belief of that we want to make disciples. And so we don't want to say that these people are not, the spirit doesn't call them um, as much as they call me. But we don't really engage on those issues anymore. And I, I agree, there's just something ironic about all of that. Well it's, well, it's ironic and I think it's also tragic because you know, over a lifetime, my conviction has been that one of the real virtues of the Christian life and one of the real virtues of Christian theology lies in its explanatory power, mm-hmm. uh, the, the power it has to account for life, the power that it has to explain the dilemmas that we face as human beings, the power that it has to answer the question, why am I here? Uh, and, and what is my purpose in life? And those are theological questions. And and to have answers to that, you have to you have to engage the theological traditions of the church. And the moment that you you say, look, those aren't the issues. All you need is love. Allah, you know, Saint John Lennon. <laughs> uh, then suddenly, suddenly, what happens is 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 that the tradition is vacated of all of its explanatory power and its intellectual rigor. And when that happens, then I think people who have no connection with the tradition have good reason to say, there's not really anything here to engage me. There's nothing that would uh, to grapple with philosophically, existentially. And then I think that that actually accelerates the disintegration of mainline Protestantism. So in talking kind of about the whole opposite, you know, we're gonna do the exact opposite of what the fundamentalists are doing. It kind of seems almost like there's also a sense that mainline Protestants, we are not comfortable with who we are. Um, Because if you were, then 
why would you really care what the fundamentalists are doing? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, to me, it, it seems like we're, there's, like we don't kind of have a, any kind of sense of confidence in, in, in our own yeah. tradition and our own identity that that's all lost. Yeah, and I think you're I think you're right about that. And I think that part of it is because of the fact that throughout the decade of the 60s, we sort of celebrated uh, relativism mm-hmm. as the sort of hallmark of adult maturity. To to have questions, but to have no answers. And and to sort of to sort of navigate life in a kind of one on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of way of approaching things was the way to demonstrate that you were facile and, and committed. The difficulty is, is that is that the only way to navigate adult life is to make commitments in the face of debate, in the face of some unanswered questions, in the face of maybe even some unanswerable questions. Uh, you, you can't do you know, what a college freshman does and spend your whole life seeing things as shades of gray and matters of opinion. And the fact of the matter is, is that I don't know an adult who actually doesn't eventually recognize that they have to make choices. You know, one of the, one of the really interesting things in mainline Protestantism is, is that if you ask people what their theological convictions are, they can be very non-committal. But boy, ask them what their political, political yes are, and they will be very clear to you with you about metaphorically who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and who's right and who's wrong. And there are they are certain that some things are appropriate and some things are inappropriate. But that's true in the spiritual world as well. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that not all religious opinions and not all theological opinions are of the of same merit. Uh, We, you know, you and I both know people who hold views of God and hold views of the Christian life that are destructive to themselves and corrosive to the lives of others. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, to, put it, to put it in a way that my students can't possibly debate with, I used to say to them, you know that Westboro Baptist is an unhealthy version of religion. I won't even call it Christian. I mean, it's a cult, but that claims Christian trappings. But it's the perfect illustration of a set of theological ideas that are corrosive and dangerous. Hmm. And I think you're right. I think what we need as mainline Christians is we, we need the courage of our convictions. And I think, that's, I think that that's really profoundly important. 
I think that clergy, especially, uh, represent to their congregations. In fact, they take vows that say that they uh, that they believe certain things, and that they are they are advocates of that perspective. Uh, they are. Uh, pastors whose care for others is shaped by those convictions. And that we live our lives out of those convictions. Hmm. Yeah, I don't see that there's much reason for church if you don't have convictions. No, I don't see any point in it either. Mm -hmm. um, it's, as I've said, as I've said a few times, if, if what you're going to do is sit around and talk about endless possibilities, then that's a great agenda for a book club, but that's not a particularly good agenda for a church. Mm -hmm. So what do you think can be done to turn things around? Well... <laughs> that's a great that's a great question it's a huge question i think that i think that one thing that that i think that the church needs to get clear about and one thing that seminaries get to need to get clear about is what their mission is what their respective missions are i guess i should say and the nature of their shared mission with one another. I don't know if we can get there. I served on our board of examining chaplains for nine years, and the board sets an exam for candidates for ordination on an annual basis that assesses their skills theologically in terms of pastoral care and counseling and a whole variety of other areas. Um, and one of the things that we tried repeatedly to get seminary deans and the church's bishops to do was to sit down and talk at length about what the church needed from the seminaries. What, what, kind, of, what kind of priest is our tradition looking for? What kind of deacon is our tradition looking for? What is basic and essential to their ministries and to their formation? And there were a few small conversations about those issues, but there were never enough of them, and, they, and none of them were ever of, a, of great enough length to really make a substantive difference. And so one of the problems we have in Protestantism is that seminaries prepare students with an eye to certain curricular expectations, which are often shaped heavily by the personal interests of the faculty in, se in each seminary, but do not, or do not necessarily account for the church's needs or take those needs seriously. And I think that one of the 
one of the things that would really change matters would be for seminaries and churches to work more closely together rather than to continue to work in the bifurcated way that they work now in which the seminary cares about getting them through its curriculum mm -hmm. and the church cares about the implications of the way they've been prepared for life and ministry. So I think that that's, I think that that's one issue. Um, I think another way of trying to change it is doing the kind of thing you and I are doing, which is talking publicly about what the issues are. Because I think for people in the pew, the notion that what goes on in seminaries is, is a kind of remote consideration. But the fact of the matter is, is that over time, seminaries deeply shape the kind of clergy that are available to the church, and they in turn shape local congregations. Another thing I think we need to do, and, and this is one thing that I, I find myself working on a lot these days, is working very intentionally with congregations in trying to help them to understand what the logic of the Christian faith is. And to say essentially, look, it's important for you to know what this life is all about. And, and having a clear understanding of what it's all about uh, does not make you a fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. you know, a, a fundamentalist comes at this with a very specific set of theological convictions which can be unpacked and scrutinized. And it's largely the product of American understandings of the Christian faith. And it is not the historic Christian faith. One, you know, one of the things that I, I just don't think people appreciate is that fundamentalism is not a 2000 year old phenomenon. Nope. By any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even a, a universal phenomenon. The relationship between evangelicalism and the rest of the church is very different in the UK mm -hmm. than yeah. it is in the United States. Hmm. And that's largely because of the influence of fundamentalism and dispensationalism in this country. So I think that's a really important part of it too. Um, and, I, and I guess since we're, since we're at kind of imagining what the solution would look like, I think the other thing is, is that bishops and leaders of the church it depends on your polity, whether it's bishops, but leaders of the church need to begin to work with congregations and with clergy and insist that we take uh, the catechetical task of parish life uh, seriously. It doesn't have to be old style catechesis. Here's a question, memorize this answer. It can be much more engaging and, and dynamic than that. But we, we need to take seriously the fact that um, our, the members of our congregations and lay people are doing theology already. 
when they talk about what they believe about God, about prayer, they're speaking theologically, whether they recognize it or not. And I think that we need to engage them seriously in a conversation about that content and about how they unpack it in terms of their own lives. Yeah, I think that that's one thing I've always, or, or I've started to wonder about more is the catechetical tradition, um, which obviously is gonna be different for lots of different um, traditions, but, but it's something that I think, you know, you mentioned earlier the Didache, you know, it's coming from the beginnings of the church. And I think that's, that was a way of helping people understand what right. the faith was all about. Exactly, exactly. the end of part one of my interview with Frederick Schmidt. Stay tuned for part two, where we will talk about abortion and the church. Well, that is it for this episode of En Route, the podcast at the intersection of church and Maine. This is Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed.